Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Paul Kelly. I'm a professor and I'm head of the government department at the London School of Economics. And I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you to tonight's speech hosted on behalf of British government at LSE and the LSE Conflict Studies Group. Tonight's lecture is part of a series of talks that we have established on the future of the union, which has been inspired by um, the campaign of, or the success of, of the Scottish nationalists in forming a majority government in the Scottish Assembly, um, debates about devolution, the um, politics and developments in Northern Ireland, which Mr. McGuinness will speak about this evening, and the um, rise of uh, mayoral politics and the transformation of um, regional and urban politics in the UK. All of these things challenge the shape of whatever it is we think of as the union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Tonight's speaker will make an important contribution to this series of lectures following our recent um, lecture by um, Alex Salmond, First Minister of the Scottish Assembly. So let me introduce our speaker, who, who probably needs no real introduction, but as a courtesy, let me do it anyway. Martin McGuinness, MP, MLA, is Deputy First Minister in the Northern Ireland Assembly, a post which he's held since 2007 following the St Andrews Agreement with the DUP and the Reverend Ian Paisley. I should point out that Deputy First Minister in the Northern Ireland context is sort of joint First Minister. It's not a, a, a second or deputing role because everything, as Mr McGuinness will no doubt explain, is parallel and equal in the setup for government in Northern Ireland. He's MP for the Mid-Ulster constituency, but in accordance with Sinn Féin practice does not take his seat at Westminster, but he's also Northern Ireland Assembly member for the same seat. Previously served as Education Minister in the Northern Ireland Executive. He has been a lifelong Republican and a dominant figure in Northern Irish politics and political life since the 1970s. One could tell a long history, a controversial history, which no doubt would be corrected. So let me just say that along with his colleague, Gerry Adams, he's led Sinn Féin in the Northern Ireland peace process. And I'm sure that topic will be part of what Mr. McGuinness discusses this evening. Tonight's speech will address the peace process, conflict resolution, and for our purposes, the future of the union. So ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce Martin McGuinness, Deputy First Minister of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for the invitation to be here for this important uh, event. And I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to come. I'm very nervous about this evening. I've been a Manchester United fan <laughs> since I was eight years of age. That was the year of the Munich air crash. And uh, hopefully they'll do well tonight against Manchester City. And uh, if they come to Belfast as champions on the 15th 
of uh, May next month for Harry Gregg's testimonial. I'll be all too delighted to stand alongside Peter Robinson, who's a lifelong Spurs fan. And we have the Irish ambassador in the front row here, Bobby McDonough, and he's a lifelong Spurs fan as well. I'm sure both of them are mightily relieved that uh, the English football authorities have uh, decided not to go for their manager and appointing the new manager of, uh, of England. But it's, it's wonderful to be here, and I do appreciate very much all of you turning out. Almost uh, 100 years ago in Dublin, a small group of Irish Republicans rebelled against uh, British rule in Ireland. And I don't believe that the men and women of the Easter Rebellion ever imagined the profound effect their actions would have on the future of British policy across the globe. It has often been said that the Easter Rising marked the end of the British Empire as it was known. The days of colonialism and domination had to end. People's right to national self-determination and freedom would have to take preference over the economic needs of the colonial masters. And I say that not to be provocative or to engage in rhetoric, but to simply mark out a significant landmark on the historical road which has led us to where we are now. The years preceding and following the First World War were a time of great political and constitutional upheaval for the British state. And I firmly believe that we are now living through a similar period of massive change, obviously not as dramatic as 100 years ago, but significant change nonetheless. In constitutional terms, whereas the rising marked the beginning of the end of the empire as people knew it, it is my belief that the Good Friday Agreement marked the end of the Union as we know it. And this belief has been strengthened and confirmed not just by what is happening in Ireland, but also with events elsewhere, with a demand for Scottish independence and indeed greater Welsh autonomy. The constitutional fabric of the British state has been changed and changed forever. As an Irish Republican leader, I am clearly unapologetic about my belief in Irish national self-determination. I am also wedded to the political and peace process, and I am proud to serve in the power-sharing institutions. Uh, that is the beauty of what we have created. There is absolutely no contradiction in me, an Irish Republican, leading in government alongside the representatives of unionism, sharing power on the basis of equality, delivering results for all of our citizens. The role of the British Secretary of State continues to diminish, and I believe rightly so. And in my view, it is time for a serious conversation where there is a need for a Northern Ireland office and the position of Secretary of State to exist uh, at all. As Ian Paisley said to me when during our first meeting, he said, Martin, you know, we can rule ourselves. We don't need these direct rule ministers coming over from England telling us what to do. And that was important common ground that we could stand on. Prior to the initial conversations with Ian Paisley, five years ago, I never had a conversation with Ian Paisley about anything, not even about the weather. <laughs> and whenever the decision was taken that we would go into government together, obviously that provided a real opportunity for him to work out what made me tick and for me to work out what made him tick. And it was quite clear to me that unionist uh, politicians who had a sense of themselves, who uh, wanted to 
take hold of the levers of power, uh, recognised that uh, the only way to do that was to forge uh, an agreement with Sinn Féin and to move forward in a way that is described by many throughout the world as a minor uh, miracle. So it is my view that the removal of the NIO and the Secretary of State uh, position and the transfer of remaining powers would be a massive vote of confidence in our political institutions and the peace process, as well as a massive saving to the Exchequer. So I want to say a few words about the peace process. We are very privileged in the north of Ireland that we are at the helm of one of the most successful peace processes in the world today. And that peace process has been long and at times very difficult journey. It has taken courage and strong leadership from all sides to make progress and to secure the political institutions. In 1988, Sinn Féin first published proposals for a peace process. At that time, we were still in the midst of a bloody and deep conflict. Many people were skeptical of our intentions. The Sinn Féin documents, scenario for peace, and then towards the lasting peace in Ireland in 1992, had as their central tenet a belief that the conflict could be ended and that it could only happen through a process of inclusive dialogue and negotiation. These public contributions were an expression of Sinn Féin's willingness to encourage the commencement of a peace process. However, behind the scenes, discussions were also underway. Uh, Michael Oakley, a representative of the British government, who we fully understood to be also a representative of British intelligence, also known in the media as the Mountain Climber, had begun talks with myself through a back channel which had not been used for some years. And these talks took place with the full knowledge and support of the Sinn Féin and IRA leaderships. As was later evidenced, these talks were taking place with the full knowledge of the then British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. And if you also look at the way in which the peace process evolved in South Africa, the same mechanism was used with Nelson Mandela in a prison cell and people within South African intelligence uh, effectively working between him and the South African government, which obviously brought about huge change. Jerry Adams and Father Alec Reid had also begun a series of engagements with John Hume, and this Hume-Adams dialogue was another vital component of the early days of the peace process. And at governmental level, the British government, led by John Major, was engaged with Albert Reynolds in a process which would eventually lead to the publication of the Downing Street Declaration and an important statement from the British government, Secretary of State Peter Brook, that they had no selfish or strategic interest in remaining in Ireland. And of course, Republicans like myself were watching all of this very closely, and I sensed that a, a real potential for a significant advance was taking shape. I, I had also read quite a number of theses that were done for British universities by very senior generals within the British Army, all of which conceded that they could not militarily defeat the IRA. And that posed a big question for Republicans. A lot of Republicans thought at that time that this was a wonderful assessment of the situation. But the big question it posed for Republicans was, 
had the IRA the military capability of defeating the British Army? And if the answer to that was similar to the answer given by senior generals in the British Army, I think that posed a huge problem uh, which people had to resolve in their own heads. I certainly attempted to resolve it in my head and came to the conclusion that a military solution for either side wasn't possible and that the British government and Republicans needed to recognise that the solution had to be built around the need for political dialogue. But we also had to get to a point where all sides wanted a peace process if we were to succeed. And I think that's a, a central element of resolving any conflict, no matter where it is anywhere in the world. If there's not a desire on all sides to resolve the conflict, then uh, it makes the task of resolving that conflict all the more difficult. I was not naive enough to believe that such negotiations either could take place or, more importantly, succeed against the backdrop of ongoing conflict and violence. There was also the difficulty that political unionism at that time had set itself entirely against the political process as it was shaping up. So it was against this backdrop that we in the Sinn Féin leadership asked the IRA and said that I believe that there was a really possibility of a negotiated solution to the causes of conflict. The IRA responded to our request that they should call a cessation with the August 1994 cessation and this remains in my view the single most important event in the entire process which undoubtedly unlocked the potential for peace. At that time, I was hopeful that we would see a proper response from the British and Irish governments from loyalism and from political unionism. Loyalism responded. The Irish government did likewise. However, the response from the then leader of unionism, uh, Jim Molyneux, was incredibly that, in his view, the IRA cessation was the most destabilising event since partition. An incredible statement. A weak John Major government, dependent on unionist votes in Westminster, retreated from the basis on which we had argued for the peace process and failed to grasp the opportunity for peace. And it is quite interesting that one of the main opponents within the Major government of a direct British government Sinn Féin negotiation is now a key minister in the Cameron Clegg coalition government. There was then, of course, a brief collapse in the IRA cessation, but I never give up on the belief that a negotiated way forward existed. The impact of the Labour landslide in the 1997 general election cannot be underestimated in the efforts to rebuild the peace process. Tony Blair's government now had a massive parliamentary majority and was indicating very clearly that inclusive time-framed all-party negotiations involving Sinn Féin would commence shortly after a new cessation. So gone was the stalling of the previous years about permanence, about elections to talks, about decommissioning. It seemed to me that the offer was fairly clear, the preconditions had been swept away, and a new opportunity was effectively staring us in the face. It was an opportunity that this Republican leadership was determined not to squander. 
and Joe Adams and I led the Sinn Féin delegation into Castle Buildings in late 1997, and within a few short months, under Mitchell's chairmanship, we achieved the Good Friday Agreement. One of the most telling moments for me in the course of that week, when Tony Blair came to Castle Buildings, and one of the most significant conversations of recent years, uh, took place between myself, Jerry Adams, Tony Blair, and his Chief of Staff, Jonathan Powell. In that conversation, Tony Blair, who told me he had read a number of books about IA's history, uh, accepted and conceded that successive British governments were as responsible for the conflict in the North as anybody else. And I felt that this was a highly significant, but very honest, and indeed the first ever such admission by a British uh, Prime Minister. In terms of the overall peace process, the castle building negotiation was only a few short months, but the impact of those few short months are still being felt today. And there is a lesson in that for other processes. The Easter deadline was, in my opinion, a crucial factor in the achievement of agreement. So it has to be said, was the contribution of others, including the then US President Bill Clinton, the then Taoiseach Bertie Ahern, and the then British Prime Minister Tony Blair, and his Secretary of State, the late uh, and very lovely Bo Mullen. But ultimately, the Good Friday Agreement was an agreement made in Belfast and overwhelmingly endorsed by Irish people throughout the island of Ireland. It was a triumph of political skill and negotiation, but it was also a triumph of the underlying principles that the peace process teased out away from the media years before, inclusion, dialogue, commitment to peace, and respect for political mandates. And it should also be remembered that while the DUP sat outside the negotiation process at that time, they had never detached themselves from the political process as it developed. In fact, in 1987, both myself and Peter Robinson led respective party delegations to South Africa at the request of the then President uh, Nelson Mandela. And that was also an incredible journey uh, for all of us, particularly the Sinn Féin delegation which I led, which consisted of myself, Jerry Kelly, Rita O'Hare, and sadly the late uh, Siobhan O'Hanlon. Why was it memorable? Well, it was memorable because we were told that if uh, we travelled on British Airways to Johannesburg, that the Unionists wouldn't get on the plane. <laughs> so we flew to Paris, and we then flew to Johannesburg. And when we arrived in Johannesburg, we were met by the diplomatic corps of the new South African government, and we were then told that we had to fly down to Arniston, in the Western Cape. And you know what's coming next. There was this huge uh, South African Air Force plane on the runway, and uh, we were told that the Union said they wouldn't get under it if we get under it. And we had to travel on a twin engine Cessna. Every word of it, sir, the truth. And when we got down, they said they wouldn't eat in the same uh, eating quarters, they wouldn't sleep in the same sleeping quarters. And when Nelson Mandela came to address the delegations, he addressed the, all of the delegations, the DUP, the Ulster Unionists, the SDLP, Women's Coalition, the UDA, and the UVF, and one room, and then came and spoke to the four of us and the other. <laughs> anyway, 
It's a far cry from where we are now, and I think we're all the better for it. I always knew in the aftermath of the, the agreement that we would enter a new phase in the process. Achieving agreement, as Senator Mitchell uh, eloquently said, was one thing. Implementing agreement is an entirely different thing. And that brings us to David Trimble and the Ulster Unionist Party. Uh, I never got the feeling that David Trimble uh, was prepared to wrap his arms around the agreement, bat for it, and fight for it. And I think he managed to squander much of the goodwill that was generated and the mandate he achieved for the implementation in the 1998 Assembly elections and indeed the referendum. There was a huge turnout in the referendum and I often ask myself where those unionist voters who turned out in very large numbers to record a 72% in favour, where did they go? They sat in the House because they were not being given leadership. And I think historians will debate and judge the reasons for this. However, from our perspective, a unionist partner willing to move forward collectively was absolutely vital. A peace process is much like a bicycle. It needs always to be moving forward. If it's allowed to stall, as under the John Major tenure, then it can quickly collapse on its side. And I was determined that having achieved agreement that this would not be allowed to happen. So it was vital that momentum was breathed into the process. Then 2003 came and we had elections and the DEP became the biggest party within unionism and we in Sinn Féin became the biggest Republican nationalist party. I remember Jerry Adams and I going to Downing Street. Then again we met with Tony and Jonathan Powell in the small sitting room and Tony was at his wit's end. Uh, his attitude was, we have to rejuvenate the fortunes of the Ulster Unionist Party. This is bad news story. So we went all about this for about six or seven minutes, and then I said, Tony, hold on a little minute. It is my view that that strategy is going absolutely nowhere. It is my view now as a result of the Assembly elections and the Westminster elections, that the DEP are in the ascendancy, that they are going to be the major force within unionism for at least the next 10 to 15 years. I said what we have to do is devise a strategy which will see the DEP come into government. They turned around to me and he said, but Sir Martin, Ian Paisley won't share power with you. And I said, I don't accept that. I do believe, uh, it'll take time, but I do believe that we can construct a scenario which will see the DUP enter into government uh, with Sinn Féin. I told him I thought agreement with the DUP was possible. It would be difficult, but impossible. No way. And so the process led to what I believe was an inevitable place, an engagement with Sinn Féin and the DUP. And of course, I made it my job prior to the first real engagement, which was on the weekend of the 23rd and 24th of March, 2007. For, for a considerable period prior to that, I was making a real effort to talk to people who were very close to senior DUP politicians, to gauge the mood and to make an assessment as to whether or not uh, this was a fanciful flight on my behalf or something of real substance. But the engagement came. The first meeting occurred between myself and Peter Robinson 
in the course of that weekend. The world's media gathered the following Monday to outline another uh, glorious failure within the peace process in the North. And they were shocked to their bones to see the sight of Jerry Adams and Ian Paisley sit down in foot of Peter Robinson and I working over a two-day period to craft every single word, dot and comma that both of them would say the following Monday. And of course, uh, we haven't looked back since then. Next week we will see the fifth anniversary of those institutions led by the DEP and Sinn Féin. And I wish to pay tribute to the role played by Ian Paisley and by Peter Robinson in bringing that historic uh, situation about. People were amazed that two people who had never spoken to each other could go into government together, not alone take important decisions, but actually find out that they could get along. The, the Ulster Unionist Party, I think it was Danny Kennedy, christened us the Chuckle Brothers. And I think he did that thinking that that would demean us in the eyes of the people. It had the opposite effect. People liked the thought of Ian Paisley and I being able to, not just being in government together, but to be civilised with each other, to be cordial with each other, and actually grow to like each other in the course of the one year that he was First Minister. And of course, whenever Ian stood down as leader of the DUP and as First Minister, Peter Robinson took over. And the media, as usual, in a very positive and constructive way, said, here comes the brother's gun. But it has been anything but that. I have as good, maybe even better, that work on and personal relationship with Peter Robinson as I had with Ian Paisley. And why is that? Because we've worked on it. Because we understand the importance of it. And we understand the importance of leading by example and showing people in the community that despite our different allegiances, that we can work together to implement the agreements that we've made between us. So we've recently completed our first term of inclusive government in the history of the North. And Paul talked about the positions that we hold. The institutions are established in such a way that uh, I, I can block anything I want. Peter Robinson can block anything he wants. And so only two options are available. You're going to block a mode, or you go, you're going to unlock a mode. And I believe that the mode that we're in is unlocking the problems, finding solutions, and moving forward to provide good government for the people that we represent. It doesn't work unless we have a good heart for the agreements that we've signed up to. It doesn't work unless we are prepared to show leadership and move forward uh, by example. So Peter Robinson and I are ministers not only in the Assembly, but also in the North-South Ministerial Council, alongside the Taoiseach and his ministers. And also the British Irish Council, with the British Prime Minister and the First Ministers of Scotland and Wales. So it was a long and sometimes frustrating road to peace, and it's a road that took all of us involved on a journey that we continue today. It's not a journey that has seen some change. But it is a journey 
that has seen very dramatic change. Our peace process has demonstrated that with belief in ourselves, imagination, leadership and dialogue, and a commitment to achieve peace, it is possible to overcome what many thought was impossible. So making peace can be hugely challenging, and it is, it is enormously difficult. It demands that we seek to understand what motivates, what inspires, and what drives our opponent. And ultimately, as Nelson Mandela told us, we have to make friends with our enemy. And he also made a very critical point, which we ignore at our peril, or anybody trying to resolve conflict ignores at our peril, that the most important constituency that you will negotiate in any peace process is your own. And all of this, it's important to remember that I am still an Irish Republican, and Peter Robinson is still a Unionist. But we each Unionist and Republicans now have a peaceful, democratic process in which we can pursue our political goals while at the same time allowing all of us to tackle important issues that impact on our people, like the economy. The executive in which I jointly lead has placed growing our economy and tackling disadvantage as the single biggest priority in our programme for government. One of the economic successes of that strategy has been the high level of foreign direct investment that we have attracted. Over the last four years, we have seen inward investors commit to over 150 investments and promote 13,000 jobs, giving us a very solid platform on which to build. And this came about directly by interventions by myself, Ian Paisley, Peter Robinson, and all our executive colleagues. The boardrooms of the United States of America uh, were open to us, and we reaped rewards in terms of jobs. Only last week, Peter and I were in Dubai and in India with the same positive message about investment in the north of Ireland. And later this year, both of us, uh, God spares us, will travel to uh, China. So I firmly believe that investors recognise the potential and expertise of an economy which is competitive, has a highly skilled and motivated workforce, and access to the Irish, British and European labour markets. A number of high-profile companies uh, from the states that are investing in the north, uh, you know, proves the point that we are open for business. We have had the New York Stock Exchange come, Chicago uh, Mercantile, HBO, we were in discussions with them three years ago, and as a result of that, I don't know if any of you guys watched the Game of Thrones, but the Game of Thrones is made on location in the north of Ireland and some 700 people have been employed over the course of the last two and a half years. And hopefully all of the books will see uh, programs made out of it, uh, and that will go on for the next uh, three, four, maybe five more years. So the creative industries are benefit in, in a huge way. Universal Studios have come, they've made movies also. However, we do face considerable economic challenges and indeed opportunities in the time ahead. So we need an economy that delivers for all. The political agreements that we've reached define a dynamic approach to relations within the North and across the island that can and do deliver for all without changing our identities and core belief. And I believe we're stronger for those agreements. Uh, I said in India, and Peter agreed with me, that for far too long the North of Ireland was inward looking, locking ourselves off from everybody else, 
thinking we were the most important people in the world. When in reality, you go out there, you see, we're only really a speck of dust. And what we have to do is recognise that we need to be more outward looking. That's why trade with the rest of Ireland is such, uh, of such importance. Inter-trade Ireland, a body set up under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, has been a huge success. And developing an all-island economy in a way that is mutually beneficial for all of us is something that we need to be doing. And I believe we can do that without in any way damaging people's political allegiances. And I think that's an important lesson that we uh, need to take forward in the time ahead. And it's very heartening to see that unionist ministers like Edwin Putz, who is the health minister, talks about the prospect that the new hospital, which will open in County Fermanagh over the course of the next uh, couple of weeks, will be able to uh, provide service for, services from people from County Cavan and County Monaghan in the south. Our Assembly and Executive has limited fiscal powers and many economic policies are devised in Westminster. So we need more economic management in the hands of locally accountable representatives in the north. We need increased fiscal autonomy. The British government at Arbohest has started a consultation on the devolution of corporation tax to the north. And this is crucial in helping us rebuild and rebalance our economy. But the British government needs to go further. We need to transfer more fiscal powers from London to Belfast. The economy is one of our most pressing issues. However, significant challenges remain arising from the legacy of the conflict. Reconciliation is integral to our work in the years ahead. Proper reconciliation is key to the future. And reconciliation is essential between our communities, Republicans and Unionists, and also between my community and the British state. It won't be easy, but I believe it must happen. Republicans realise that dealing with the past will not be an easy process for us. Republicans inflicted much hurt during the conflict, and much hurt was inflicted on Republicans. But if we are to build a new future, it is necessary, and it is a road I am not afraid to go down. And in my experience of recent years, many within the unionist community are up for that journey of reconciliation and dialogue. For Republicans, increased dialogue and engagement with the wider unionist and Protestant community is absolutely essential. That means being prepared to set aside our own assumptions about the nature of that dialogue in order to better understand the fears and apprehensions of Protestants and Unionists. I believe we have to listen unconditionally to what they have to say. Republicanism needs to become more intuitive about Unionist apprehensions and objections and sensitised in our response. We need to be open to use new language and consider making new compromises. So our conflict is over, and the imperative of creating a better society that ease with itself is a new challenge for us all. We will approach that laborious work with compassion and imagination. We will ensure our engagement is based upon listening carefully to unionists and indeed others, and we must develop the capacity to explore what more can be done to help meaningfully heal our society's divisions. So dialogue using new language and making new compromises to create trust are the seeds of a new future for us all. In Irish politics, the word compromise was always a dirty word. 
We should not be ashamed. We should not be ashamed of the compromises that we have made. And I am proud of the compromises that I and my party have made to bring about a stable peace. We should all be proud of where we've taken our people. The war is over, the conflict is over, and there will be no going back. I am deeply committed to my goal of a united Ireland, but can only now happen through purely peaceful and democratic means. A united Ireland, in my view, makes sense. In many ways, the political progress in the North over recent years has levelled the political playing field for nationalists and Republicans to argue for the first time ever from a position of equality that Irish unity is a political and economic imperative. And that debate should not be confined to Ireland. There is a rule for people here in Britain to become persuaders for Irish unity. And I want to see all those in Britain becoming voices for an altered union, a union without Ireland, for a united Ireland, a peace with itself and its neighbours, including Britain. Our countries have had a fractious relationship over many centuries of colonial repression and conflict, and it is time for a dialogue on how we heal the hurt and move into a new era. So this British government needs to embrace the inevitable constitutional changes rather than waste money, effort and time fighting progress. The Irish peace process has showed what can be achieved in a short period of years. So my objective is to build a new Irish Republic, one which lives in peace with its nearest neighbour, on the basis of mutual respect and equality, but more importantly one which is at peace with itself, and genuinely reconciled as we leave the political failures like union and partition behind. So as an Irish Republican and as a Democrat, I remain convinced of the right of the people of Ireland, the island of Ireland to shape our own future from outside interference. In my view, the future will be best served by ending the union and removing partition. So there is now a democratic and peaceful way to achieve these objectives. So this is the task ahead of me, and I will continue to work uh, towards that goal. No matter what the challenges, no matter what the threats from those who would try to destroy everything that we've built up, by being involved in small, tiny, unrepresentative organisations, uh, which uh, over the course of the last number of days have shown that they're still around and still determined to destroy everything that we've built up over the course of the last 15 or 20 years. They will not succeed. There is no prospect whatsoever, whatsoever, of them uh, splitting Peter Robinson and myself splitting Sinn Féin from the DUP and the other parties in the Assembly. We will stand united together, and in the end, we and the peace process we espouse, we are the people who will prevail. Thank you for coming.